Good afternoon, I'm Professor Larry Jacobs. I direct the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. And we are hosting uh, today's program and I put it together. I wanna welcome and thank you for joining us for today's program, Healthcare Innovation and COVID-19. Our guests today are spectacular. Um, I wanna begin with uh, Michael Chernu, who's at the Harvard Medical School. Uh, Michael is speaking today as a Harvard professor and not as the chair of what is known as the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission. This is an influential body of independent nonpartisan experts who provide advice to Congress about the administration of Medicare. In addition to wearing that hat, Michael is very well known as a researcher uh, looking at a whole slew of questions particularly related to uh, healthcare costs and strategies for controlling them. We're also pleased to have with us Chris Snowbeck, who is the healthcare business reporter at the Star Tribune. Those of us in Minnesota know Chris as really the, the, the lead reporter in Minnesota. Those of you joining us nationally and remember Robert Pear, this is Minnesota's Robert Pear. Uh, he also serves on the board of directors for the Minnesota Society professional journalist, which is kind of the Pulitzer of, uh, of reporting in Minnesota. Um, great to have you with us. Thank you very much, uh, Chris Snowbeck and Michael Chernu. Um, it's great to be here. Michael, I want to start with you. Um, we've had, you know, I think this country's really had an extraordinary um, a reckoning with disparities, economic disparities, racial disparities, um, and many folks in the area of health policy have fought long and hard about this. Um, and there's also been this debate and conversation and, and policy work around something known as social determinants. Could you tell us how you think about health disparities and what is known as the social determinants of health? Sure. Thanks, Larry. It's great to be here. So health disparities broadly refers to differences in outcomes across classes that we care about. As you mentioned, it could be by income, it could be by race, it could be by ethnicity, it could be by uh, other types of things we care about. Um, social determinants of health refers to factors that contribute to people's health that aren't the things that we typically consider clinical factors broadly as the name would suggest, social factors. So that might be housing insecurity, food insecurity, um, your living situation. So if you live alone, for example, um, you're limited in how you might respond to certain types of treatment. If you get a hip surgery, it's much harder to manage if you're living alone than if you have someone to help you, for example. So social determinants of health is the, the broad name for all of these things that affect your health and your health outcomes that relate to your, the broad context of your um, living situation and environment. Thank you. Uh, Chris Novak, you've been covering Minnesota uh, now for some time. How would you characterize the, the status of health disparities? Yeah, it's a, it's a real problem in the state. Um, I mean, I think uh, you know, the state uh, healthcare leaders in the state, I think rightly, you know, are, are proud of sort of um, the state's ranking, if you will, on all sorts of 
um, sort of health measures, but they, I think, are getting better about quickly acknowledging that within that um, there are some real issue, real problems with uh, with disparities, racial and ethnic. And I mean, it. Um, I I've been uh, for the last fifteen months, like most health reporters, I've been doing an awful lot of COVID reporting, and of course often said rightly that um, COVID, you know, really put a spotlight on these disparities. And I just wanted to mention a couple of things along those lines that are real um, focused on Minnesota. I mean, I, I uh, in September, I did a long feature story, terribly sad story about a Latina woman who, uh, who died. Um, she was pregnant. Um, the baby made it, thank goodness, but just, just horribly sad. And what was um, beyond the personal tragedy, just the numbers at the time were that if you looked in Minnesota, there were 900 pregnant women who had been infected with COVID at that time. And 339 of the cases were among Blacks, 239 among Hispanics. In other words, more than half, um, you know, non-white. Um, Fairview, one of the big hospital systems here, by the way, can everyone hear me? I want to make sure. <laughs> okay. But, you know, Fairview is one of our biggest hospital systems here, and they just um, did a, a study that came out about a month ago. And, you know, just looking at all COVID patients, not just pregnant uh, women, but again, uh, in, in Fairview's all Minnesota hospitals, over 50% of those hospitalized non-white populations um, you know, this is a this is a pretty white state, candidly, right? So, um, so I mean, the the COVID um, numbers really show the issue in the state. And the other thing, I guess, I would just mention is that, you know, that I, I apologize if I keep referring to this theme throughout our conversation today, but I mean, pan, the pandemic has kind of eclipsed so many healthcare issues. One of, I mean while shedding a light on disparities, you know, one of the things that got missed is the Minnesota Community Measurement, one of our good, you know, sort of report card agencies here in the state. They've long done studies on optimal care for um, diabetes and vascular problems and whatnot. And, they, you know, they, they put out a big report just a few months ago, just putting front and center the, you know, how the, that, um, folks in racial and ethnic minority groups are much less likely to get that optimal care. Also highlighted, highlighting non-English speakers in the state. I mean, there's overlap, but um, real disparities there. So anyways, I don't know if that answers it, but it's a real problem. Michael Chernow, um, there has been many decade concern about uh, the United States healthcare expenditures and health expenditures. Um, and this goes back a number of decades. Over the last 15 years, we've been bumping along just under 18% of gross domestic product, which is the economic activity of the country. Um, you look around the world and most other countries are half that or, or well less than that. <clears throat> there are lots of ways to measure it, but the conclusion is uh, America is spending way more, has been spending way more, um, now we're into a new era in which there is this focus on health disparities and, and, and mitigating those. There's also a concern about expanding coverage to more people. 
what is it going to take for America to control costs in order to do an effective job controlling or mitigating health disparities? You know, Larry, that's like a six seminar kind of question. I hope your listeners aren't expecting the quick pithy answer because I'm not going to give them a quick picky, pithy answer, mostly because I don't know, but I'll watch the chat for answers. Um, I'd like to separate them out from them. We clearly have an expenditure problem, as you pointed out. And as we grapple with that expenditure problem, um, many of the solutions, one of the more popular ones, for example, is to charge people more out of pocket when they go to the hospital or when they go to the physician. Those types of solutions to spending, the ones that require people to pay more out of pocket, say high deductible plans, have a tendency to potentially exacerbate disparities. And so as we begin to grapple with our um, spending problem, we need to think through how the savings or at least the reduced increase in use might help us solve some of our other problems. But for example, when healthcare premiums rise quickly, it becomes harder to finance care. It becomes more expensive for the government to subsidize the subsidies they have on the exchange, for example. So um, I think that is, that is all true, but it is not the case that if we take action to control expenditures, we will inherently address problems with disparities. That's a policy choice. Whether we decide to expand Medicaid or not um, is a little bit of a separate question. How we decide to finance um, all of our programs to support um, better access for people in um, disadvantaged populations. All of those are policy choices. Um, the financial pressure just makes it harder. And the details of those financial pressures differ between the main segments of um, coverage, Medicaid, commercial, and Medicare. So we face different challenges in different subpopulations, but everybody is struggling with how to pay for um, the care we need for everybody, um, but with a particular attention um, on the groups that we think are most vulnerable. And, and just to be clear, um, there's a distinction here between healthcare spending for the whole country, and then the prices that individuals are paying, whether it's for our premiums or the deductibles um, or other cost sharing uh, that you have to do when you see a provider. Um, Michael Cherno, though, I wanna come back to you just a little bit on this because we have made a policy decision to expand coverage to over 20 million people because of through the Affordable Care Act, which Supreme Court is once again upheld today. Um, so isn't that decision that we're now on the path of expanding Medicaid, we've created a marketplace for individuals to get uh, private insurance with subsidies for most folks and other steps, doesn't that put us in a more dire situation than we have been in the past? Well, I think it might put us in a better position. I'm not sure I understand more dire than what, but um, I was not expecting the Supreme Court to rule otherwise, by the way. So I think we've been on this path since 2010. I think there are some issues, the most notable one that relates to our overall situation and to disparities is what, that, what will happen with Medicaid expansion in the states that haven't expanded Medicaid. Um, but whether there's a problem with uh, care in um, 
uh, financing writ large, the Affordable Care Act, um, even when it's working as designed, had to face those pressures. So um, getting rid of the Affordable Care Act wouldn't have solved our problems. It would have, you know, just brought us back to the problems we had before the Affordable Care Act. You can debate whether you like how the Affordable Care Act addressed those problems, but there really were problems before the Affordable Care Act. Um, it was one manifestation of how to solve those problems. So every part of healthcare in the environment we've been in, in the environment we will be in, has to grapple with costs. And it is true, and I think this is probably what you were getting at, the more the government is funding the care, the more that we care in policy places about the spending trajectory. But just to understand, even in the commercial employer market where the government is not funding a lot of that care, depending on how you think about the tax exclusion, but in any case, the government's not funding a lot of that care directly. We worry a ton about spending increases. We worry a ton about the hollowing out of benefit generosity. And so the pressures due to high costs aren't simply due to the fact that they're being publicly financed. They're actually just being, uh, they're due to the fact that they're being financed. In fact, more broadly, I would say there's no magic money tree. So one way or another, all of the money we use to pay for care is coming from somebody. It can be coming from taxpayers. It can be coming from employers in terms of their contributions. It can be coming in terms of workers, in terms of reduced wages or out-of-pocket contributions to premiums. It could be coming in terms of patients paying out-of-pocket for care. But one way or another, all the money is going from us collectively as a, coming from us collectively as a group of individuals to the healthcare system providing us the care that we need. Uh, Chris Novak, uh, towards the end of uh, Governor Mark Dayton's administration, he famously referred to the Affordable Care Act as unaffordable. What's the situation in terms of health expenditures and um, uh, the, the prices that individuals are facing here in Minnesota, which is compared to other states, generous? Right. So um, again, the pandemic eclipses a little. Um, I mean, uh, you know, just um, I think most every health cost report I've read, um, you know, nationally has talked about, you know, 2020 being such an outlier in terms of cost trends. And that's been that was true in Minnesota as well. I mean, for me, the best source is the uh, the trade group for the nonprofit health plans in the state. And so they calculated a 2% decline in per person medical spending. Um, so um, what that was driven by, of course, was, you know, um, uh, essentially a shutdown of uh, uh, non-emergency healthcare in the state for a while, a second quarter of 2020 with like really low utilization and then sort of a comeback in utilization, but in the second half of the year, but, you know, it nets out to down a little bit. Um, so one of the things, of course, everybody's watching is like, to what extent does that all just come back in 2021? Um, I was just reading a Milliman report that suggests maybe not all of it does come back, um, which I think, you know, raises one of the intriguing questions going forward sort of in the post-pandemic world, not that the pandemic's over, it's not over, but, you know, it's, it's moderated, um, is, you know, I mean, to the extent that there's historically been, you know, concerns about, um, you know, overuse of care or, um, you know, care that, you know, we could do without, um, uh, in, in the 
in the pandemic, did we sort of screen some of that out in a way that the system can continue to screen it out and operate more efficiently going forward? So that's one of the big questions, which I assume we'll get to. But um, I could rattle on and on. I mean, within the, the general trends, I mean, it's sort of a different uh, reality for insurers in Minnesota and hospitals in Minnesota, but may maybe we'll get there later. I want to pick up on that theme with, with Michael. Um, there was a lot of concern at the beginning of the coronavirus and the pandemic about how the um, health system would survive would, and, and which parts of it might not survive. Um, the hospitals were kind of heroic uh, and we're seeing that way. There was, you know, people uh, serenading hospitals and, and hospital workers, and there was a lot of concern about that. You've written, though, um, in an article uh, in the last few months for the Journal of the American Medical Association, um, flagging the high prices reflect market power, and you single out hospitals as a driver for those those high prices. Could you explain what you mean by that? Sure. First, before I do, I want to call out uh, all the other types of providers as well. So I, I don't dispute the uh, heroism of the people working in the hospitals, but the SNFs, for example, were ground zero for a lot of the COVID challenges and stuff. And the work that physicians and the uh, nurse practitioners, et cetera, did is, across the board has been heroic, not just their dedication, but in many cases, the danger when there wasn't enough PPE and stuff. So I, um, that's absolutely true. Um, I think one problem in health policy is it's complex and the solutions are awfully new, often nuanced. So it is possible to believe that hospitals acted heroically in the face of COVID and to believe that hospital prices are higher than they need be in some cases. So for example, there is widespread uh, academic research. I think it's now loosely unassailable that when providers consolidate, prices go up. So that means when hospitals merge, prices go up. When hospitals buy physicians, prices go up. For that matter, when big physician groups join together and become a bigger physician group, prices go up. So um, for the most part, um, you s see an increase in price associated with consolidation of the delivery system. And um, essentially that was behind what I was writing. Now it's interesting if you look at um the prices, particularly price per patient by Medicare um, as compared to uh, the, private, um, uh, uh, the private rates for um, hospitals. There's a large disparity. Um, the Medicare does a better job at um, controlling costs relative uh, to what's going on outside of it. Why is that happening? Yeah, so first of all, I'll emphasize something you said at the beginning. I'm speaking as my role as a professor at uh, the Department of Healthcare Policy, not as my role as MedPAC chair. But the short answer is um, these issues of consolidation don't affect the Medicare program because Medicare sets the prices administratively. And in the commercial sector, prices are set through the market system. So I'm a reasonably free market economist, but I think it is hard to argue in healthcare that markets are working well. Um, there are, is a lot of consolidation. There's also consolidation on the insurer side, by the way. But in any case, there's a lot of consolidation. That consolidation leads to higher prices in the commercial market. It is not a driver of higher prices in the Medicare program. 
Um, Chris Snowback, we've got a, uh, a medical system in the southeast corner of Minnesota. And if you look at a whole lot of different procedures, including let's say hip replacement, uh, much higher down in the southeast corner, obviously I'm referring to Mayo, than here in the Twin Cities. What might explain that? <laughs> I think we need an economist to get that. No, um, uh, uh, it could be market power. It could be, uh, you know, um, no, I mean, it's it's one of the, the enduring uh, uh, issues I've been writing about over the years in Minnesota, and it's not unique to Minnesota. I mean, it, it's uh, there, I, the way, the term I keep using, sorry, readers is marquee medicine or you know there there are there are high profile systems across the country yeah i uh, even in it seems to me like in in yeah they're, they're just all different communities you know have different systems that tend to be the place that everybody thinks uh you know you want to have access to and um and so then that can carry over into, you know, an ability to, to negotiate price. I'm told I should tell, I should say, you know, uh, no one ever shows me a contract. So, <laughs> um, well, I'm still waiting, but, uh, well, let me, let me turn to, uh, Michael Cherno, who's, who's done quite a bit of research looking at these very variations within and across regions and States. What would be your explanation for why Mayo uh, charges prices that are so much higher here in Minnesota than what you see in the metro. Yeah, the great uh, joy in talking to you, Larry, is I think you actually know the answer. You're just in a role that makes you ask the question. Um, I'm where Chris was. I think there is certainly some quality component of it potentially, but largely I think they have a lot of market power um, and they use that market power um, uh, in ways to charge somewhat higher prices. There's a question about whether that's worth it, which is a much, much more complicated question to answer. I think, and I won't speak to Mayo, but I think collectively the evidence is pretty clear that when um, hospitals consolidate, you see higher prices without an improvement in quality. That does not mean that there aren't individual high price hospitals whose quality justifies what they're charging. It simply means as a matter of generality, consolidation leads to higher price with very little evidence of better quality. So and if, oh, could I jump in real quick too? Cause I, I feel like in deference to Mayo, you know, I mean, I mean, what part of what they will tell you is, I mean, gets at what Michael was just saying. I mean, is that, you know, I mean, unit prices may give you one idea, but if you looked at you know they, they're doing great things for patients, and if you if you looked at total cost of care, they would say you know you know our our patients come out uh, really well. And then there are report cards that suggest on total cost of care, Mayo is still expensive. And you go on, and then Mayo will critique the methodology of those report cards. So I mean, it gets very complex quick, um, which is one reason I should really write about baseball instead of all this. But so it goes. We've got a lot of great questions, which we're going to get to in a second. Um, before we do that, um, Michael Turner, I want to uh, read back to you uh, a section from an article you had um, about six months ago or so in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, and this is more optimistic. You said the key success moving forward as we recover from the COVID-19 shock 
will be to create a more efficient delivery system. We will have to reduce the amount of low value care delivered and address excessive prices that burden payers and distort incentives. Can you unpack that for us? Well, first of all, that's an aspirational statement. Um, so you raised early, Larry, appropriately, the struggles we have with expenditures. And that statement is simply saying, if we're going to succeed in building a fiscally sustainable healthcare system, we're either going to have to lower prices or quantity. Um, the thing about quantity is you don't want to reduce utilization of high value care. That's the whole point of the healthcare system is to give people care that they need. So you have to reduce the utilization of low value care. Your listeners may ask, what does he mean by low value care? And so the short answer to that is a lot of care is delivered in this country that does not provide substantial, if any, health benefit. And it took a long time to acknowledge that fact. We've known that in the research community since the variations work done by Jack Wenberg at Dartmouth. But um, Still, I think most people believe in individual cases, the care that they are told to receive is up the appropriate care. And I would say most of the time it is, just to be super clear. And if anyone's listening, don't listen to your economist, listen to your doctor when you're making clinical decisions. But from a broad assessment of averages, there is care delivered that is not necessary. So this has become much more prominent in the medical community now. The American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation sponsored an initiative called Choosing Wisely that identifies what that care is. Um, a bunch of folks have worked on trying to measure that. Actually, the state of Minnesota may be working with a company, Milliman, to try and measure that. Um, and so that's what we have to do on low value care. We got to get rid of that care. Michael, can you give us an example, something people might know of as an example of this low value care? Yeah, so um, the easiest one, of course, is when you're using expensive branded drugs when a cheaper generic drug would be fine. Um, there's examples of other services like getting certain types of pre-operative uh, testing before low-risk operations. A lot of that goes, there's initiatives now people call stop the pre-op because there's a belief that there's a lot of op a lot of tests that go on before a surgery that really aren't needed. And in fact, sometimes identify meaningless things that cause a whole slew of other problems called care cascades. Uh, vitamin D testing is commonly considered one. A lot of imaging for low risk head pain, uh, you know, uh, certain types of surgical procedures. Um, the Choosing Wisely campaign asked over 70 specialist societies to come up with those types of things uh, in their specialty. And now there's over 400 recommendations. Many of them are nuanced. They don't say don't get MRIs. They say don't get MRIs um, right away. They don't say don't get back surgery. They say don't get back surgery um, unless you've gone through physical therapy first. So it's complex, but that's the type of thing people are talking about. So underlying this conversation about uh, low value care is the proposition that the healthcare system, the providers, the doctors, and others are alert to financial incentives. And when they see a way to get paid, they're attracted to it, particularly if it's a, high, uh, uh, a payment with low costs for them. Um, and for decades, health economists like Michael Cherno and many others have been studying the effects of these financial incentives. So this, you could think of this as like chapter 48 in a long running study. Uh, Chris Novak, you've written and I know thought about the um, effects of the coronavirus on um, telehealth, 
on, on other ways in which uh, we've adapted. Do you feel like that's a pretty clear outcome in terms of what's valuable uh, uh, as a result of that um, innovations or accelerated uh, trends that we've seen in healthcare delivery? Just to make sure I'm following, are you asking if it has the pandemic shown the value of telehealth? Is that? Or, or other sorts of, of, of procedures and, and um, care. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, it seemed, I, I think um, a lot of people were forced, in, forced into telehealth by the pandemic and found they kind of liked it. Um, so, I mean, I think, I think that's a way forward for a lot of things. I think, I think there'll be a, oh, sorry, go ahead. Let me ask, let me ask this. Do you think the, the benefits of telehealth are so powerful and so well known at this point that uh, we should be looking to transform the healthcare system based on it? Do we know that? I don't think we know that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's the, that's part of it. Michael, have you seen aspects of, of healthcare delivery um, during the COVID period and now that we appear to be emerging from it, that you would say, careful here, this could be one of those emerging low value care um, situations. Well, again, I'm gonna give you uh, a complex answer. Um, the one thing that the pandemic illustrated perhaps more than all else was the value of telehealth. And I think it's universally recognized that without telehealth, we would have had substantially bigger problems than we otherwise would have had. So I put telehealth in my high value care category. That being said, not all telehealth is high value. And so therein lies the challenge. I don't think the COVID uh, experience has led to an across the board acknowledgement yet that we should never do X, Y, or Z, although I think some health services research going forward may identify those things. Once the data comes in, we have time for follow-up. I think there's some real study opportunities there that we will begin to see. But I think the bigger issue about COVID is it's changed aspects of care delivery, particularly around virtual health, in ways that undoubtedly was high value in general, but may have included many low value instances. Okay. And so I think what I take away from what you've just said is uh, more to come. We need to study this. If we're looking at payment uh, mechanisms, uh, such as paying um, uh, providers who use telehealth versus you know, in-person uh, visits with a, a provider, you know, setting that up at, at parity that they're paid equally, that shouldn't be done um, in a permanent way. We need to be cautious here. We need to study, we need to understand the relative values. Is that fair? Yeah, I, I, I think that's true. And um, I think there's a range of other things about understanding where telehealth works. It's not just what we're paying for it, although, again, to be super clear, price is an unbelievably important part of the system, but it's also how much telehealth we're getting. Are we getting, uh, you know, people can go to to get care in situations where they otherwise um, wouldn't need care because it's much more convenient. I think this is the challenge that telehealth is going to pose is it's really hard to operate a telehealth payment model in a fee-for-service world because you have audio only, which by the way is incredibly important for disparities. Um, you have 
remote patient monitoring, which is very complicated to figure out how to pay with. You have quick phone calls, you have email connections. Um, so uh, I think that we're really gonna, telehealth is gonna really challenge um, uh, a lot of the other um, aspects of payment. Uh, Chris Snowback, you wrote a very interesting article back in May about um, a collaboration between the Mayo Clinic and Kaiser Permanente of using medical, medically home um, uh, monitoring and care. Um, and that seems to be tapping into our new uh, kind of tolerance of technology uh, and also the capability. Could you talk a little bit about these, these medical homes? Sure. So I think the, the, uh, the basic idea uh, that, that they're using there, and I think it's similar to what others are doing, is, is uh, you know, they're, they're sort of identifying a subset of things that traditionally have been done in hospitals, and they're going to try and do it at, in, a, in your home. And so they'll outfit uh, your home with a, a super nice communication thing <laughs> so that you can be monitored um, your condition. You have ready access 24 seven to like a command center nearby that can get you help quick if you need it. And there's, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's either EMTs or nurses or, you know, I mean, there are folks who are not dispatched in EMT, not in an emergency sense, except that's what they otherwise do, but you get regular access to providers in your home. So there's a component of um, you know, technology and also touch, I guess. Um, and so it's a really interesting experiment. It's, uh, you know, Mayo, Mayo's a big name, Kaiser's a big name. They're putting some money into it, which is always of interest. Um, it, it, it's all kind of got mo a lot of momentum because CMS um, you know, said we'll start paying for it in the pandemic context. So one of the big questions with all this stuff is, you know, how does the the emergency liberalization, if you will, of, of payment, does that continue and in what form? But it's, uh, yeah, it's super interesting technology. And it's, of course, it's always interesting with Mayo. I mean, Mayo is a, um, you know, Mayo has huge hospitals, right? And so on some level, you would wonder, well, wait a minute, why would they want to take patients out of their beds, but um, Mayo's also lots of things and, and has lots of resources. So, so it's, it's intriguing. I've been incorporating questions from our friends in the audience here. Uh, and Michael, I've got two uh, questions I think you'll consider softballs, and then one that maybe uh, will challenge a little bit. Uh, here's the first question. Uh, what do studies show about health disparities between rural and urban areas? Yeah, so um, in the pure disparity sense, there's a lot of um, health challenges that are in rural areas that um, uh, the, the health outcomes are often worse than in urban areas. Um, they, it, it's harder to get access to the same care in uh, rural areas. There's some other social determinants of health that are going on in many rural areas. Of course, there's parts of urban areas that have similar problems. So there's heterogeneity within both urban and rural. But for the most part, I think rural America faces unique challenges with regards to healthcare. And you see some of that in the health statistics. Uh, a follow-up question uh, or related question, um, uh, which is related to uh, high 
uh, fever for a child in a rural area, um, telehealth was the perfect solution. Uh, the questioner says uh, for, for this sort of thing. Does that strike you as it's kind of reasonable? I don't know if you call it high quality care. Yeah. Again, I'm an, I'm an economist. I'm not a physician, but I'm going to go with yes. The point is not that telehealth can't be invaluable. It obviously can be invaluable. The question is that doesn't mean it's always invaluable. Therein lies the problem. There's situations that are much less dire where um, maybe the right thing to do is just wait a few hours um, or do some other thing, or uh, you don't might not need that many follow-ups. You know, you, you could get through after your procedure, after your visit with fewer follow-ups, but telehealth makes that all easier, uh, which means more is done, which means more potentially, depending on payment, this is the key point, could be billed. So there's certain clinical conditions, tele, uh, mental health, by the way, is considered amongst the most valuable uh, uses, but that doesn't mean all telemental health is high value. And that's the problem with these things. The service is not good or bad. And that's true for all services uh, in almost all cases. It's when and how the service is applied. And that makes managing it challenging. And that makes it difficult to work in our fee-for-service system. Okay. Here's the third question. How can we explain the uh, Federal uh, Drug Administration's recent decisions? Yeah to approve the new Alzheimer's drug. Um, no proven benefit. And the cost is about almost $60,000 a year. Is that a question for Chris? Uh, uh, my, my answer is, look, I don't wanna uh, go into the uh, nuances of the, de uh, the decision. It's clear if you look at the advisory panel that the FDA advisory panel was not particularly in favor of approval of this drug. And I think that's perhaps the most important thing to get into the conversation. Why you should explain it, I wasn't in the room where it happened, but um, I think the overarching um, motivation, in my opinion, was probably the disease was so bad that people just wanted something. And so it was very hard to take something even despite very weak evidence. And I might add evidence of potentially serious um, side effects. It's not simply the evidence of, of benefit was weak. There's actually potential for real harm. Um, but I think the main thing was given the severity of the disease, and I can tell you from personal experience, this is an unbelievably devastating disease that there was just real pressure to get something approved. And um, I think the fiscal consequences will be uh, potentially dire depending on what happens through the rest of the process. And it really illustrates the difficulty in health policy when it becomes concrete relative to health policy in the abstract. It's easy to say things uh, when you're talking generally, but when you talk about a specific condition and someone wants access to this drug for their relative, uh, for whatever reason, it is really hard to be at the front line of saying, I don't know if this is appropriate. Okay, so let me just uh, be a little more blunt. Do you think uh, politics and the power of of uh, consumers who are desperate for treatment overrode the science, which was quite mixed? Um, Larry, you're the political scientist. Um, I'm gonna be a little more circumspect in my answer. Um, I think it's a question of 
look, so I will say as an economist humbly that economics is only one factor that drives decision. Politics is important and certainly politics played a role in aspects of this. The question is that doesn't inherently mean it was wrong. I'm not in favor of the decision, by the way, to prove it. But that being said, that doesn't mean it was wrong. I think it's really a question of what traits were being valued and how highly. And so obviously the advisory panel had a very particular view of the benefit, one that I would probably concur with, but not because I have any different information. I just trust the, the advisory panel um, and other people disagree with. And so I think we have to, you know, I, I don't know exactly how to say much more than that, except clearly the decision makers had a different weight on the evidence than the advisory committee did. Okay, um, thank you. Chris Snowbeck, we haven't talked about profitability and um, many of the actors in this conversation, the insurers, the providers um, um, are looking at returns or at least, um, and some of them are looking at high level uh, profits. Um, and by the way, they're also private investors who are now looking at healthcare as uh, as a massive moneymaker. Um, I noticed on uh, the second quarter of 2020 that um, the Minnesota-based United Health had a $6 billion profit. What does that suggest to you about um, the nature of insurers and providers? Is, that, is there something more general that we can read into that? Well, I mean, I, I think that's primarily just right the dynamic of, that many insurers saw that they set uh, in no one forecast, no one had a pandemic related slowdown in utilization baked into their numbers. And so you set premiums of a certain level, sort of more according to historical norms of inflation. And then whoop, there was a big uh, drop in use in that second quarter. I think that's primarily what that's about. And and, you know, I mean, I'll say, you know, it, some, as I said earlier, some of that came back in the second half of the year and not all of it. Um, but, but I, I mean, I, the, the other thing that should be said is, I mean, the insurers, uh, United, United was up front and saying, I remember that, that quarterly call, even, you know, in stressing that, um, you know, all the ways they were, um, trying to extend discounts or rebates or payment plans or what have you to their customers, which, um, you know, we didn't know at the beginning of this, um, what was, whether there would be a big drain on employer sponsored coverage as a consequence of the economic, you know, paralysis with the pandemic. And I think it was a, it was a reasonable question at the time, um, whether, you know, I mean, I guess if I'm running a health insurer and I'm not, but I mean, you know, group employer groups are a really important uh, piece of business. And, um, you know, I want to make sure they stay in the game, I guess, if I'm that, that entity. So, so I think there was a, a good bit of, um, I don't know if give backs are quite the word, but I mean, the, 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 I don't know, it's a, it's a interesting picture. Michael, I'm going to ask you about um, a story that's gotten a lot of attention in Minnesota, and I think nationally, and Chris has actually written about it, which was a decision of United Health to uh, initially stop paying for non-emergency uh, care in emergency rooms. 
Um, and then there was a backlash and, um, and, and quite a bit of negative attention. And now United Health has pulled back and said they're going to delay it and study it more. But I want to just kind of dig in on that because it seems to me that when you look at the numbers and the kind of situations that United Health was responding to, that they were trying to target this low-value care that's expensive, treatments um, that are, you know, very expensive in an emergency room that can readily be taken care of in a doctor's office. Do you agree with that? I'm not sure completely what the that is in that sentence, but. Um, I think your assessment of the situation is right. The challenge is that it's difficult ex ante to know what the situation situation was ex post. So well, let, me, let, me give you, let me give you some concretes because yeah. uh, United Health Group actually did a study of this and they found uh, identified 18 million emergency department visits for things like bronchitis, cough, lower back pain, um, respiratory illnesses that um, could well have been treated in a doctor's office. Now, isn't that the kind of thing, if you're a proponent of weeding out low value care that, that maybe, maybe United Health got this right? Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I mean, I think certainly United Health does a lot to try and weed out low value care. I'm not sure I would have started there, but I'm not gonna speak for or against United because I don't know the details of that situation. I think the challenge is, um, you could have symptoms that seem like your physician could deal with it, but they actually seem like you could be having a heart attack. So you go to the emergency room because you're not sure what's going on. And then it turns out to be something that when you ask the question, it seems like it really should have been treated somewhere else. But you might not have known that's what it was when it actually happened. And the medical community is obliged to treat you once you get into the emergency room. So this is really about where the patients are going, given the systems they're facing much more. I mean, there are situations where certainly within an emergency room, people can be overtreated. And if you followed any of the surprise billing discussion and rules, there's certainly a lot of things going on in emergency rooms that would make you upset in terms of the prices being charged and a bunch of other things. All of that being said, we need emergency rooms. People need to be able to go to emergency rooms when they think they have an emergency and providers need to be treated for the patients that show up in their emergency room, right? That remains to be true. It is true that ex post, some of those people might not have needed to belong to the emergency room. And it is probably a reasonable thing to try and set up systems to divert people with minor problems or problems that might likely be minor to some other setting that then they could be sent to the emergency room if they needed to be. Urgent care, telehealth, we've been talking about. There's a range of things you might do. The question in some sense to me is not whether that is the place I would have started for low value care. The question is really how in how do our payment models make this type of action really difficult? And I think with a broader different payment model, you might avoid some of these, I think, really unfortunate types of situations. You certainly need to educate patients. You need to give them alternatives when they think they have issues. Um, I think where you get this pushback is when providers given care that may have been reasonable ex ante or done things that were reasonable ex ante to say ex post, oh, this isn't what should have happened. Um, and that's where I think the pushback was. I don't know the details here. Um, and obviously United started in a direction, got a lot of pushback. And now, as you said, they've pulled back some. Um, so again, I speak in general generalities when I talked about low value care, you pushed me to give some specifics, which I did. None of those were 
uh, emergency room oriented ones. And so it's just a question of the choices you make. Chris Novak, do you generally agree with that? Oh, I suppose. I mean, you know, I mean, it, 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 it's a, um, I mean, like, to me, it goes back to what we're, we're talking about earlier. I mean, and I, I, what, what's really interesting to me about the second quarter of 2020 is that, you know, so much healthcare that usually happens didn't happen. And it creates this opportunity, I think, then to study, well, um, you know, what didn't happen that should have what didn't happen that we're okay with, you know, not having had happen. And I don't think, I guess the one thing that struck me about um, United's, the proposal is, I mean, we're, we're as, as I said earlier, we are still in the pandemic and it's not clear that, um, I, I don't think, I think there's a lot we still don't know yet about what the pandemic really did to demand in a way that's troubling. And so it, it, it may just have been um, too soon to, to put that out there. I don't, I don't know. I really, and I honestly, to readers out there and viewers, I don't, I really don't have opinions on it, but it, but it does strike me as a really interesting subject that to, to be watching here. Thank you uh, Larry, Larry, I just want to jump in and add one thing just, so there's sort of two issues. One is how do we think about the money that was, not spent in COVID, even though the premiums were paid. That's that's sort of one issue. Then there's this issue specifically about uh, how do we get rid of low-value care and what United was doing. So first and full disclosure, I work with United uh, in a range of these types of topics, um, including some incidentally related to COVID and very much in the spirit of what Chris is talking about. And it just takes a while to get the data to say what we can learn. But um, you know, United has, I think, a pretty advanced program on social determinants of health. They have an analytics team that spends a lot of time trying to figure out where care can be delivered efficiently. Um, there will always be debates about whether they exercise those tools in the way that they should or the way that people like. And because it's so complicated and nuanced, there's always going to be tension around when are you stepping too far? When are you not stepping far enough? But given the uh, problems we face with expenditures, you're going to get this type of um, managerial activity. And sometimes um, I think it will work well and sometimes it won't. But um, again, this is not really a webinar about United, but if you look across the board at what they're doing, I think you'll see an enormous number of initiatives, broadly speaking, motivated by an attempt to try and improve the efficiency of care delivery. And the execution of that is a challenge that, of course, every insurer is facing. And for that matter, every provider is chasing, I th is trying to figure out how to become more efficient at what they do. It's just challenging. We're running out of time, so I want to click through some more of the questions that we've gotten. Um, Michael, one of the questions we've gotten is about rehospitalization um, and the expense of it. And as you know, um, wearing your Medicare hat, um, Medicare has set up um, uh, payment systems that um, are tied to evaluations of the quality of the care given by hospitals, they go by all sorts of acronyms and, and, and kind of tricky names like hospital value-based purchasing. And on this one, hospital readmission reduction program. Um, and there's still more. Um, do you think these programs work? Has, there's been a lot of attention to them. Yeah. So first of all, I do think uh, readmissions is an issue. I'm not a huge uh, 
believer in, in dramatic success of these types of programs for a whole bunch of technical reasons that we, we won't go into. Um, but uh, again, I think the challenge we face broadly is in a fee-for-service world, we have a hard time to ma managing all these underlying things that go on. And so we can put in place these programs like the readmissions reduction program, for example, which at first we thought worked great. Then the literature came out that said, well, maybe the research that said it worked great didn't fully adjust for some coding issues, for example. Um, and it's become quite controversial. We have to find ways to measure quality. We continue to find ways to measure quality. Readmissions is one measure, but again, it's, I, I'm not a huge fan of readmissions being a great measure of quality. I like things like patient experiences and other types of outcome measures. So let me ask you about something you have looked into, which is in terms of cost control, setting the commercial prices at the Medicare rates. Now, Medicare has several different programs for hospitals and physicians uh, that have attempted to set the rates. Uh, it's known if you wanna get deep into a prospective payment systems. And so the Medicare rates are lower than they are in the private um, arena. And Michael's done some research uh, with colleagues looking at the idea of setting the commercial rates at what Medicare is paying. Are you enthusiastic about that approach? I'm not enthusiastic about that approach, just to be super clear for your listeners, just because you do research on something doesn't mean you're enthusiastic about it. Um, the I read reason the I'm, I'm quite aware of that. Yeah, the reason why I'm not enthusiastic about it, realizing we're in the last five minutes and I don't have time to read through the inevitable hate chat I'm about to get is the fiscal implications of doing that uh, on providers, I think would be really substantial. You could have providers losing 30, 40% of revenue and to the extent that we're worried about disparities and quality and stuff, I think that's really, really uh, a substantial immediate hit if you're gonna set all commercial prices at Medicare rates. That being said, I am in favor of regulating um, prices at the upper end and the rate of spending growth. So I believe uh, in the commercial sector in particular, um, the core problem is prices. We've talked a lot about low value care, but in the commercial sector anyway, we could talk about Medicare, but in the commercial sector anyway, the core problem is prices. And I do believe we need more government involvement to address high prices. It's just, I don't think that solution would be set all prices at the Medicare rate. I think that solution would begin to move down from the top and then you know, continue to monitor what's happening to quality and access, and you yeah, can decide I, how that plays out. I can almost feel folks in the audience who are advocates of Medicare for all, or some variant, nodding their head. Is that what you're you're heading towards? You, you think government ought to be setting rates? Well, no, I don't think government ought to be setting rates. I think government ought to be capping rates. There's a big difference, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, again, we could have a whole webinar on government price setting, the pros and the cons. I will tell you, I, I speak as my role as a Harvard professor, but I have more experience than many in uh, government processes for setting rates. And I don't wanna go through the details, but the short version is, if you think the government would a good, do a good job, sure. If you think the government wouldn't do a good job, it could be a disaster. And so a lot of your views about government rate setting have to do with how well you think the market's working, that's inevitably imperfect, and how well you think government will work, that will inevitably be imperfect. And so usually what happens is the people that want the government to set rates assume the government will do it well and the market stinks. And by the way, the market 
market does kind of stink. And people that want the market to do it think the government is inevitably going to do a bad job. And they talk about like, you know, super high price, you know, toilet seats on planes and stuff, and the market will do much better. And by the government, by the way, the government can uh, stink at how it sets prices and what it does. And so you're not comparing a perfect market to a perfect government system. You're comparing an imperfect market to an imperfect government system. And your choice there is much more complex. Thank you very much. Uh, Chris Snowback, I want to give you an opportunity to have the last word. Let's, let's talk baseball. No, I, yeah. <laughs> the, the last third there was complex. And uh, as an aside, not that anyone cares, but I mean, as, as I'm sort of, uh, just professionally moving back towards these topics from the pandemic. I mean, it just strikes me two things. One is it's still complicated and difficult. The other thing I just wonder about is, I mean, one of the, one thing that happened during the pandemic here in Minnesota is, I mean, Minnesota had um, a really visionary, innovative employer group in the 1990s that really tried to drive uh, some big change that group went away during the pandemic. And um, over the years, I've followed different, you know, sort of employer-led efforts. Um, employers, I think, have, you know, they've been a font of really interesting ideas of trying to change things. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure to what extent they're, they're out there right now. I, that's one of the things I want to try to, to look at going forward. Great. Thank you so much. Chris Snowback, Michael Chernow, thank you for joining us as well. It's been a terrific conversation. And I want to thank uh, both of you for, for making it so um, important. Thank you. I want to uh, take a moment to thank Blue Cross, Blue Shield of Minnesota, and introduce my good friend, Scott Kiefer, who is Vice President of Public Affairs for Blue Cross. Blue Cross has been sponsoring these forums we've had for a number of years. Um, and Scott has been the perfect partner and I'd like to turn it over to Scott for some closing words. Thank you, Larry. And uh, my thanks to Chris and Professor Cherno as well for being here today. We've had a, a, just a rich discussion. I hope, uh, I hope, Michael, we can have you back, back and continue this conversation, maybe revisit uh, the steps that we've taken coming out of COVID. And it's pretty clear to me that there are some obvious takeaways I would say uh, number one is uh, we have to do our best to remove barriers. So from an insurance perspective, we've learned quite a bit about waiving cost sharing expenditures for first COVID testing. Uh, that was ultimately mandated. Uh, we also waived uh, cost sharing expense for COVID treatment that wasn't mandated. And my organization has extended that through uh, the end of this year. So we want to eliminate those barriers and cost, as Michael said, clearly as a barrier from time to time. We've also learned that telehealth had uh, clear benefits. Uh, as an organization, we're looking at telehealth services that may normalize. Uh, people have talked a lot about behavioral health. It seems to me that there's a clear benefit there when there's an existing relationship and because of people's conditions, they may not always want to go in to visit their, uh, their therapist in person. Uh, and as Michael said, we look at an issue like the issue of phone only, uh, something that was uh, clearly not contemplated before the pandemic is considered very important from an inequities perspective. But also, I know that federal agencies and state agencies have concerns around fraud. So how do we address those? 
And then related to that, uh, there's the issue that at Blue Cross Blue Shield, we're now talking about the issue of internet access and broadband as the newest social determinant of health. So how are we going to improve that access, which is important for a geographically dispersed state like Minnesota, uh, and especially at gaps uh, in rural communities where we don't have that access, but it's also an issue uh, for many of our urban communities here in the Twin Cities Metro. And those of us who are working from home have encountered that uh, when we've dropped from those Zoom calls. We think about inequities. Uh, we have to address this issue in real time. Uh, looking at the vaccine uh, issues related to inequitable distribution, that is an urgent uh, public health issue that many in Minnesota and throughout the country are engaged in. We have to think about the issues of screening. Uh, I know that our clinicians, uh, our chief medical officer worries very much about the impact on decline in cancer screenings through the pandemic, the decline in childhood immunizations, all the things that we want people to go to the doctor for. How do we, uh, how do we deal with that? There are a few uh, open questions that we didn't learn, and it's always good to have an economist remind us that there's no magic money tree. Uh, thank you, Michael, for that. And when we think about the outrageous cost of entry of Biogen's new drug for Alzheimer's, uh, Aduhelm, uh, I won't speak to, to the clinical benefits there. I'm a lawyer, not a cl clinician, but as a policy analyst, I do look at the price. And I know that from an insurance perspective, there's not an efficient way for us to price in a drug that costs $56,000 a year, particularly when we look at an organization like ICER, the Institute for Clinical Effectiveness Research, said that the value of that drug, the relative value of it was about $8,000 a year. So when we think about low value care, how do we get uh, eight times uh, the entry price? So many of these issues require more analysis. Uh, Michael, I know that the, uh, you, you're not speaking for MedPAC, but I think MedPAC has said, when we look at something like telehealth, telemedicine, we need to understand the utilization of that along with the outcomes and how do we improve those outcomes. And I'll close by saying uh, a few positive things. Uh, on this day, I would be remiss, Larry, if I didn't comment about the Affordable Care Act. I hope that we finally put the Affordable Care Act to rest after more than 10 years. The Affordable Care Act was written with the promise of first tackling access to coverage. We've seen improvements there. Thank you, Chris, for mentioning Minnesota, the improvements uh, that we've seen in coverage. Actually, coverage increased surprisingly during the pandemic. The Minnesota Department of Health recently told us that. But the Affordable Care Act was written first to deal with coverage and then to deal with the cost of care. So I say it's high time to roll up our sleeves. It's pretty clear that stakeholders, including insurers, aren't going to get their first choice. But we need to have a community-wide discussion and look at the successes of efforts that were cited here, like choosing wisely and how we can have collaboratives that bring about durable and lasting policy solutions to these issues. Uh, so thank you uh, to everyone for tuning in today and uh, look forward to future conversations. And thank you, Larry, for the partnership. Thank you, Scott. Finally, another warm thanks to our guests, Chris Snowback and Michael Chernu. To all of you, thank you. <laughs>